0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, with us today from The Rachel Maddow Show, Howdyland.com, Counterspin, MarkFiori.com, The Majority Report, Le Show, The Progressive, and The Young Turks. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, this episode may make you feel like you're about to be assassinated by
1: your own government, but that's probably not true. Probably. Four years ago this week, presidential candidate Senator Barack Obama was wrapping up a worldwide tour through Europe and the Middle East designed to amp up his foreign policy credentials. Here's what that looked like. As many as 200,000 people crowded their way into Berlin's Tiergarten Park to hear Senator Obama's vision for the world in July of 2008 and to cheer, and cheer, and cheer some more the greatest danger of all is to allow new walls
2: to divide us from one another the walls between old allies on either side of the atlantic cannot stand the walls between the countries with the most and those with the least cannot stand The walls between races and tribes, natives and immigrants, Christians and Muslims and Jews cannot stand. These now are the walls we must tear down.
1: Senator Obama was greeted abroad like a political rock star, and not just by his tens of thousands of adoring fans. As Frank Rich put it at the time, Senator Obama was treated like a, quote, president in waiting by foreign heads of state and the media, too. Four years later, it's election season again, and there's a new candidate who's out to prove his foreign policy bona fides. And this week, it's Mitt Romney's turn to tour the world and try to look presidential. So, Mr. Romney, you might have heard, is not having the same kind of foreign policy trip that Barack Obama had four years ago. Yesterday's headlines were dominated with fallout from Mr. Romney's gas-filled first day abroad, including his total diss of London's Olympic hosting abilities. And today's were all about his embarrassing walk back of said gas. Back here at home, the dynamic duo of Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal and Virginia Governor Bob Ultrasound McDonald set about to try to turn Mr. Romney's bad press in Europe into good politics in America. Governor Jindal telling a conference call today, quote, we're not worried about overseas headlines, we're worried about voters back here at home in America. So, Governor Jindal making the calculation that Americans don't care about headlines in foreign papers. Look, he's probably right. Americans certainly are not basing their vote on British editorializing, but it does seem to me that we can learn a lot about a candidate by how they interact on the world stage. Senator Obama's world tour in 2008 as a presidential candidate wasn't just about how the kids loved him so bad in Berlin. He also visited Iraq, where he met with the prime minister and top U.S. military commanders in Baghdad. And he went to Afghanistan, where he met with American NATO troops and with Afghan President Ahmed Karzai, and called for more troops and more focus on the war in Afghanistan. Now, for those of you keeping track at home, this is what President George W. Bush's exit from the international stage
3: looked like.
4: So
1: what if the guy threw a shoe at me? That happened during George W. Bush's final trip to the two war zones he led America into as president. Make no mistake, I certainly do not condone shoe-throwing or any other kind of attempted assault or disrespect of a world leader for that matter. But the shoe-throwing incident was sort of emblematic of Bush-era foreign policy. George W. Bush did not play well with others on the international stage. And by the time he left office, his foreign policy agenda was deeply unpopular both overseas and at home. And that's where Mitt Romney's foray into foreign policy leadership comes in. With the minor disasters of his debut in London behind him, Mr. Romney granted an interview with an Israeli newspaper ahead of his upcoming visit there. The newspaper, incidentally, is part owned by billionaire Republican donor Sheldon Adelson. So there's that. But what's really important about this interview is that Mitt Romney, what Mitt Romney had to say about foreign policy. When asked for his thoughts on the U.S. response to the Arab Spring, Here's what Mr. Romney had to say, quote, The Arab Spring is not appropriately named. It has become a development of more concern. And it occurred in part because of the reluctance on the part of various dictators to provide more freedom to their citizens. President George W. Bush urged opposing Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak to move toward a more democratic posture. But President Obama abandoned the freedom agenda, and we are seeing today a whirlwind of tumult in the Middle East, in part because these nations did not embrace the reforms that could have changed the course of their history in a more peaceful manner. So to be clear, Mitt Romney is arguing in favor of the George W. Bush foreign policy plan. He's saying the Middle East is all messed up because President Obama, abandoned president bush's freedom agenda you see in other words day two of Mitt romney's foreign tour involves telling a foreign newspaper owned by a right-wing american billionaire donor that he wants to get back to bush era foreign policy he thinks george w bush was doing it right and that's where he wants to take the country and the world back to the george w bush way of doing things so what if the guy threw a shoe at me The fact is simply this, that being the president of the United States is not just the domestic management position that the Romney campaign might wish it were. The president of the United States is, in fact, important to the rest of the world. In fact, for citizens in many countries, he may have more direct life or death decision-making power over them than he does over Americans, because he's less fettered by Congress and by federalism in his role as commander in chief. And that means that the world tour of an American candidate for president is not just a beauty pageant. Very well might not matter in terms of the vote count back home in November, but a president or presidential candidate's presence overseas is substantive. And Mitt Romney's decision to embrace the George W. Bush version of American foreign policy might give America watchers Pause, not to mention how it makes the American public feel.
5: A mother was grieving her loss, her soldier, the ultimate cost.
6: She went to the man who's been told that he's a king and waited outside of his compound to ask him a few things. Yeah! My son after and tell me where are their weapons and what did you have
7: tonight Former members of the Bush administration lined up at the Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, dc today for a long overdue punch in the face. Former Secretary of Defense Don Rumsfeld was first in line.
2: Anyone who's been around intelligence gathering knows that it can be wrong.
7: Former President George W. Bush was unavailable for his belt in the Kisser due to his participation in a roller coaster marathon at Six Flags. He will be slugged in the jaw by a member of his Secret Service
8: detail later today.
3: Former presidents tend to avoid publicly criticizing current presidents, especially when they are of the same political party. That is what made Jimmy Carter's June 24th New York Times op-ed about the human rights record of the United States so notable. Carter blasted the use of drones, targeted assassinations, indefinite detention in Guantanamo Bay. The piece was read as a very public challenge from one Democratic president to another. And given Carter's reputation as a human rights crusader, it carried additional weight. But there are serious problems here, starting with the very first sentence, quote, The United States is abandoning its role as the global champion of human rights, close quote. The critique that follows is built around the notion that current policies represent a dramatic break with post-World War II U.S. foreign policy, quote, while the country has made mistakes in the past, the widespread abuse of human rights over the last decade has been a dramatic change from the past, close quote. But is that really so? Sure, drone strikes and the Guantanamo Bay prison camp are new, but consider reality for just a moment. The massive carpet bombings of Vietnam and Cambodia, the invasion of Panama, which likely killed thousands of civilians. Consider Jimmy Carter's own record as president, which included support for bloody rulers in Indonesia and El Salvador, Ronald Reagan's Contra War on Nicaragua. To know this record and to speak of the United States as a champion of global human rights is frankly absurd. But it's hard to imagine the New York Times publishing an op ed that dealt squarely with these unpleasant facts. Better to pretend that history shows that we are human rights champions, making a few new mistakes.
2: It's fine as love.
6: The Magic Drone is everything that's great When you're in a thing He just blows
4: up sh-
6: Okay Hi, I'm Blasty You're gonna be seeing a lot more of me Now that everything is coming up drone It may not look like it, but since I fixed up Afghanistan for the USA, now NATO is going to spend billions for their very own drones. And that's (laughs) dronerific! It feels just like peace when you're fighting war from your easy chair. While you're safe at home, I'm blasting bad guys and occasional innocent villagers who are clearly on their way to becoming bad guys. It's the drone recruitment effect from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, and Yemen to selling drones to Iraq and Turkey, I'm on the leading edge of the coming Drone-topia! Where my commander and drone can comfortably target US citizens abroad. And Drone-topia is coming to a police force near you! But just for surveillance, of course. Drone-topia is so wonderful who can blame other countries if they wanted to be part of it too and say uh, blast threats who are hiding out in other countries! I can do it all. Kill bad guys, kill good guys, fight wars, fight peace, wash your car, and even paint your house. So sit back, relax, and push that button, because thanks to Drone-topia, war has never felt so peaceful.
9: Got an email, and you know I don't. I generally don't read these in this part of the program, but um, it combines sort of two uh, things that I want to talk about. Well, first off, is the Nation magazine came out with a very strongly worded editorial about we we can't afford to be silent on these uh, drone strike program that the Obama administration has uh, implemented. Now understand if we're talking about drones uh... attacking people on a battlefield if we're talking about we're engaged in a war and we're on a battlefield these things become a lot less complicated perhaps no less lethal but if we're talking about fighting an army or Clearly, uh, militants, that's fine. But I mean, if you. We, we spent some time going over this drone program, and there's nothing clear about this. Signal strikes, we don't even know who we're hitting. We don't even know who we're hitting. We're just hitting an area where we think there might be militants. And we also have a policy of naming anyone that we hit with a drone as a de facto militant because we hit them with a the drone so it really goes a long way into cutting down to that collateral damage because there's no such thing as collateral damage anymore and the notion that we can kill an american citizen with a drone strike without judicial review that the notion that we no longer have a standard of judicial review as a function of due process but rather a committee of people who are just in the business of killing other people is ridiculous so uh... this is something we should be talking about and I'm glad to see the Nation is. I don't see it in many other places, frankly. Although uh, Chris Hayes, of course, had um, his uh, Nation colleague Jer- Jeremy Scali- Scahill on the program. I think it was a week or so ago to talk about it. And I think that's why the Nation came out strong because Scahill was attacked for pointing this out. But I got an email from listener. And he said, "Uh dear Sam, I've been listening to your program for about a year and a half. Before that, I caught you on Air America. You do a fine job. As fine a job as can be expected within the context of American politics." Well, yeah, that's I do speak within the context of American politics. And that's the problem. The latter has become a complete charade, corrupt through and through with no end in sight. Tough for me to argue. I would quibble maybe at the margins, but so, when I hear Senator Merkley, for whom I voted, utter the phrase, take it to the American people, I want to throw up. When was the last time the politicians listened to the 99%? I interviewed uh, Senator Merkley on Friday from uh, Netroots Nation. I can understand uh, some jadedness as to the notion of taking it to the American public. Although I could point out some nominal movement, at the very least in rhetoric. As a function of what the American public has done, but send more money, shouts the the Obama camp, because Romney raised more in May than they did. uh, Disgusting. The other thing is, all right. So uh, let me just take that. I'm not giving any money to politicians right now. I can just tell you that, because I uh, my I do have a certain measure of disgust, but and i am not saying that people shouldn't or should i'm just talking to me personally the other thing is i know you're going to vote for obama it is true i have stated that i will probably vote for obama and when i say that understand that i'm making that statement in the capacity as a as a a host of the show in other words i live in new york state i, I, I have a certain latitude as a, a because i live in new york state but i am when i say that i'm going to probably vote for obama i'm saying that because in the context of that i think it's important particularly in a swing state that that people vote for obama over romney unless how we uh, somehow we have some miraculous third choice that is actually viable which i i I I don't. Uh, that's it. Doesn't seem possible to me. That's fine. That's your prerogative, but that's where I draw the line. His drones killed children, children like your own. He pursues whistleblowers with unprecedented vengeance, strips us of our civil rights, etc. Cetera, et cetera, Yes, I know these things because I've covered these things extensively on this program. Extensively. Perhaps more so than on virtually any other program. There's probably a couple out there that. But it's certainly uh, more so than any other program with the resources that we have. Your rationale is that Romney would be worse, kill more children, and so forth. Oh, yes, in the Supreme Court. Romney will appoint conservatives, i.e., fascists like Roberts. Yes he will and democrats will just go along obama will appoint candidates that are to the right as well because republicans know he can be had and won't stand for anything less than another conservative the supreme court another corrupt institution that you sh- that should have been dumped years ago all right well the sur- regardless of whether or not you think that somehow something should have dumped the supreme court that's not going to happen. I don't know the mechanism in which that could happen. What you're talking about is fantastical. What really should happen, if that's the way that we can think, is that I should just be appointed president with the power to overturn everything that we both disagree with. That's what really should happen. And then there's a whole list of other subsidiary uh, happenings that could happen that would make things even better. And yes, Obama will probably follow the trend of replacing uh, anyone sitting on the court, at least on the f- of the four, with someone who is more conservative. But uh, there is no doubt in my mind that if President Obama replaces one of the five that will probably be the first time in 50 years that a supreme court appointee would actually move the the balance of power towards the left even if it's a marginal change will it be a, a corporatist uh liberal probably but relative to romney who would who would undoubtedly appoint a roberts or an alito or a thomas there's no debate there. You can also say, well, the Supreme Court's a sham and it should be absol- uh, it should be de- it should be uh, completely wiped away. Well, that's not going to happen. It's still going to make uh very important decisions that are going to continue to dictate our lives in some very important ways. But then he goes on to ask me his most pressing question would you let's take this a step further would you still vote for obama if he promises to build fewer concentration camps than romney the answer is an unequivocal absolute yes and in fact i would go further it is morally repugnant of you if you believe that candidate a will create more concentration camps in this hypothetical than candidate B to in any way aid or abet the election of that candidate a because I, and I, I'm speaking in those terms because you're obviously writing to me with some type of moral righteousness. Look in the mirror and tell yourself that you are morally righteous because you would knowingly aid and abet someone who's going to create more concentration camps than less. Think about what you're arguing here. Would you tell a partisan? In 1944, that if you can't get rid of all the concentration camps, there's no point in eliminating one of them. It's just absurd. He goes on to say, I cannot give money to a person who will vote for a candidate who kills civilians and continues to fight a war in Afghanistan despite promises to get out. Well, first of all, President Obama never, as a candidate, promised to get out of Afghanistan and i actually do think that we're going to be getting out of afghanistan even quicker than has been announced but that's besides the point if you think that you will ever have the opportunity to vote for an american president who could win or even perhaps yes who could win that we'll never spend our tax do- dollars on killing people. Ah, uh, then you have better insight, or you're going to live a lot longer than I am. I mean, I get your drift, but you understand that if Romney allows his advisors and is dictated by his uh foreign policy advisors and starts a war with iran that by not voting you are voting giving uh romney a half vote in the event that he wins that's just the math that's not, it's, just, it's just completely the reality That's why I stopped subscribing to mainstream newspapers that helped us get into wars, and that's why I must stop subscribing to your program. So please terminate my $10 a month payment. I appreciate it. Best of luck to you. I got no problem with uh, someone ending their subscription to this program, particularly if you think it's going to help in some way prevent wars. but there's no logic here you're just acting out like a child there's absolutely no logic here never have i in any way ever helped promote war on this uh... well let me let me rephrase this actually um... because i think uh... i think i was on balance in favor of the libyan intervention put aside for a moment the the fact that i felt the congress should have authorized it, but it doesn't seem to be what you're talking about here and i'm not quite sure that that was well for for the sake of argument let's say it was a war Uh, but but the idea in some way that You are going to prevent wars or whatnot. It's just simply misguided, and and I actually have far less of a problem with your uh, end of subscription than the righteousness in which you talk about the voting. Take that ten dollars and a month, and I don't know, make an art project that talks about. um, But you should go out and vote still, and you should vote. For someone you believe who has a chance, you should not throw away your vote, and understand that you have no more leverage than I do at this point. And if you think this is going to teach President Obama a lesson, I got news for you. I'm aware of of you canceling your subscription. And I know exactly what to attribute it to. You don't show up to vote, I guarantee you. There will be no narrative that it's because of drones or whatnot. None. Zero. It will have absolutely no impact other than to make yourself feel more righteous. But as you're feeling more righteous, just remember that in some way you think it's okay that that. Extra additional concentration camp in your hypothetical exists. It's actually a great hypothetical. If you were a partisan and you had the ability to shut one of ten concentration camps, would you say, not gonna? Because there's no difference between ten concentration camps and nine concentration camps. So to heck with it i'm going to stay at home and feel very righteous that i just believe there should be no concentration camps good luck with that
3: Reporting on the alleged U.S. killing of al-Qaeda's deputy leader, Abu Yahya al-Libi, the New York Times said that U.S. drone strikes in Pakistan, quote, remained one of the United States' most effective tools in combating militancy, close quote. Really? Now, there's no doubt the drones often kill their targets, along with plenty of other people who happen to be nearby. But does that really qualify as combating militancy? In Yemen, increased drone attacks have resulted in a doubling of the ranks of the local branch of Al-Qaeda, and some potential attackers reportedly cite the drone attacks on civilians as motivation to try to attack the United States. And the day before this Times report, former CIA Pakistan chief Richard Grenier told The Guardian that, quote, we are creating more enemies than we are removing from the battlefield, close quote. All of that is hard to square with the idea that drones combat militancy and of course there are questions that should be asked on an entirely different level The new issue of Harper's Magazine includes testimonials from the survivors of one attack in Pakistan in 2011. One of them puts it like this, quote, I am mostly illiterate. I stopped going to school because we were all very afraid that we would be killed. I am 21 years old. My time has passed. I cannot learn how to read or write so that I can better my life. But I very much wish my children to grow up without these killer drones hovering above so that they may get the education and life I was denied, close quote. It sounds like the drone program combats more than militancy. Education and literacy are casualties as well. Casualties of war.
10: Casualties of war. As I approach the battle Where's the enemy? Who the one paid? Pull us a check. Mom, pull a fool. Best grip. Take it out of your flame. With a bag full of clips. I got a family to wait for my return To get back home is my main concern I'm
3: gonna get back to New York For, one piece for the better than saying that As hot as the city streets God lights
10: up like fireworks Blind me, bullets, whistle in over my head Remind me
8: President Bush said attack back to number might not make it back In his strongest critique of drone strikes Christoph Haynes Says some may constitute war crimes uh, he's the U.N. special rapporteur on extrajudicial summary or arbitrary executions. He fears that the CIA run programs in Pakistan, Yemen and elsewhere would encourage other states to flout long established international human rights law. In his strongest critique so far of drone strikes, he suggests they may some may constitute war crimes. Haynes is a. South African law professor, he said, are we to accept major changes to the international legal system which has been in existence since World War II and survived nuclear threats? Some states find targeted killings immensely attractive, he said. Others may do so in the future. Killings may be lawful in an armed conflict, but many targeted killings take place far from areas where it's recognized as being an armed conflict. If there have been secondary drone strikes, he continued, on rescuers who are helping the injured after an additional, initial drone attack... That's what we saw in the famous WikiLeaks video from Iraq. He continues now: those further attacks are a war crime. There is great uh, debate as to whether, uh, as to how many civilians have been killed by U.S. drone strikes. Pakistan's UN ambassador in Geneva said the strikes had killed more than a thousand civilians in Pakistan alone. But as we uh, learned from the New York Times right at the beginning right around the beginning of the, just before the beginning of this month the, uh, the United States has a, a way of explaining why we may be reporting so few civilian casualties with our drone strikes. According to the Times report President Obama, who is in charge of personally proving the names of everybody who's targeted by drones, the so-called kill list, he embraced a method for counting civilian casualties that counts all military-age males in a potential strike zone as combatants. Unless there's explicit intelligence posthumously Proving them innocent. Counterterrorism officials insist, inside the administration, insists this approach is one of simple logic. People in an area of known terrorist activity are probably up to no good. There you go. Don't need a lawyer for that. It is um, a moment in time we're remembering on this broadcast because this uh, New York Times report on um, the construction of kill lists as I say, came out right at the end of May. The only real furor uh, surrounding it has been who leaked? But, um, there, there, the, the, uh, story in the Times does report, and it, it, it details how President Obama goes about making the selection of the targets. He's presented with so called baseball cards with, uh, you know, pictures and background on, on all the potential targets. In the wake of the death of the uh, propagandist for Al-Qaeda, an American named al some administration officials, including the Attorney General, argued that the Justice Department should make public its legal memo justifying these targeted killings without uh, <laughs> the quaint quaintness of due process. Obama had in 2009, released Bush administration legal opinions on interrogation. But this time he chose to keep the Olaki opinion secret. Once it's your pop stand, you look at things a little differently, said the CIA's former general counsel. Michael Hayden, former CIA director, now an advisor to Mitt Romney, said secrecy has its cost and Obama should open the strike strategy up to public scrutiny. This program rests on the personal legitimacy of the president and that's not sustainable, said Hayden. I have lived the life of someone taking action on the basis of secret office of legal counsel memos and it ain't a good life. Democracies do not make war on the basis of legal memos locked in a DOJ, Department of Justice, safe. The nutty thing, the, the reason I'm Focusing on this moment in time is not only did that New York Times story appear just at the end of May, that very day or the day after, President Obama bestowed, lavished the Presidential Medal of Freedom on several folks, among them Bob Dylan.
2: Bob Dylan. Started out singing other people's songs, but as he says there came a point where I had to write what I wanted to say because What I wanted to say nobody else was writing So born in hibbing, Minnesota a a Town he says where you couldn't be a rebel. It was too cold (laughs) (laughs) Bob moved to New York at age 19 by the time he was 23 uh, Bob's voice uh, with its weight its its unique gravelly power was redefining not just what music sounded like, but uh, the message it carried and how it made people feel. Uh, today everybody from Bruce Springsteen to YouTube uh, 2 owes Bob a debt of gratitude. Uh, there is not a, a bigger giant uh, in the history of uh, American music. Uh, all these years later, uh, he's still chasing that sound, uh, still searching for a little bit of truth and uh, I have to say that I am a really
8: big fan.
3: (laughs) Bob Dylan.
8: Bob Dylan stood silently during the ceremony. The author of Masters of War did not want to respond. Here's what he did not want to say. Uh Oh, you listers of Q
5: You think you're so smart You list with your head You kill with your heart It's all remote control No blood on your hands But they all know your name In those far distant lands You've got baseball cards From which you can choose Folks who will win From those who will lose The men who are young Which you'd be if you could Are okay to snuff They're probably up to no good Oh, your planes are all drones No pilots at risk Nobody to question Nobody to frisk it's all so precise That's the way that it's played And when you kill children Mistakes they were made Now you're drawing the bullseyes eyes In a war without end Detainees are forever So you don't apprehend Oh, you doubled down On a wrong-headed war We thought we voted for less But you gave us more Oh, you listers of Q you think you're so smart. You list with your head. You kill with your heart. It's all remote control. No blood on your hands. But they all know our names in those far distant
9: lands. The kill list that uh, the president has um, uh, is maintaining uh and uh we uh, using drones essentially yeah. um one of the things that came out of that i mean i find many aspects of the story uh disturbing one of the things that came out of it was that the justice department uh has essentially said that due process doesn't necessarily have to be judicial in this instance particularly specifically the killing of an
7: american citizen
9: uh abroad Give me your perspective on on that.
7: I think this is an area that needs um, two things. We need uh, better congressional oversight of this area, and then we need to develop a clearer notion of what the appropriate level of due process is. Um, If an American has taken up arms against the United States, is on a battlefield shooting at U.S. soldiers in a battlefield overseas, we have no hesitation in the context of that battlefield conduct to shoot that soldier or any other enemy soldier. As you work your way more back towards um, specific targeted killings outside of a battlefield context, uh, it gets more and more challenging to How figure out how you provide the, as you said, due process necessary to make Americans comfortable that that terrible power is never misused.
9: I mean, and so uh, do you have a sense uh, that we know that there was a um, essentially a finding by the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice that allows this program to continue, and it was found legal. Do you have a sense of what is in that letter? In other words, we have essentially a secret law that says this is okay, but I'm not allowed to look at it anywhere. Um, Our senators... I
7: I fought many battles um, with the Bush Justice Department to get access to the Office of Legal Counsel, the OLC memos, that supported the torture program, the warrantless wiretapping program, and other excesses of that administration, and I can remember being taken in and told that I could read them but not have copies, that I couldn't have them brought to my office. I had to go to the executive branch in order to read them. Uh, we battled over whether I was allowed to take notes
1: I Is there while any I
7: justification for
9: something like this?
7: Well, there is. um, And the argument is that a president has the right to get advice from his lawyers or her lawyers. um, And like any attorney-client relationship, that's kind of sacrosanct. And people who might wish the president ill politically don't get to jump into that conversation any more than a prosecutor gets to jump into the conversation between a defense lawyer and the defense lawyer's legal counsel. Where that begins to change is where the opinion isn't just a legal opinion being provided to the uh, president, but is in effect an administrative act of the administration that is now the basis for authorizing activities. And there's a tension between those two that I don't think we've resolved very well yet, from a point of view of our congressional oversight. It seems to break down a
9: little bit that someone could rely on a memo from the OLC as if it were a statute, uh, and use that as a get out of free, uh, get out of jail uh, free card, yeah. or a you can't prosecute me card in the future. But at the same time, it's also. But when, in the, in the terms of it being protected, uh, uh, correspondence, if you yeah. will, um, it's, it's,
7: imp- it's merely advice. Well, uh, and the, the probably worst case of that ever was in the Bush administration. Gonzalez, attorney general, office of legal counsel opinions that authorized the Bush torture program um, as one of the first... People outside of the administration to read those, I was really horrified at the quality of the work. And how can we say that it authorizes something if it's merely advice? If it's merely advice. I mean, isn't that the, that, the point? It's sort of at the boundary between being just legal advice to somebody versus being an administrative authorization in its own right. And in that case, clearly the quality of the legal work had been degraded in order to reach the outcome that they wanted to. And so that's kind of the worst case scenario in which not only is it um, just to find out what's going on, because it's in effect an administrative authorization that you want access to be able to read those things, but also, frankly, if they're tanking the opinion in order to get a preordained result, you want to be able to have a look at it, be able to make an impartial assessment as to whether that underlying legal opinion is really legitimate or whether it's results-oriented legal uh, opinion-making.
9: And and so have senators uh, had the opportunity to see that uh, OLC document uh, that the the Obama Justice Department has produced uh, authorizing these kill lists? And I am not aware of it. And so, let me. Uh, I want to move on. Um, that's. Uh, is, is there any attempt uh, in the Senate to, to to Is anybody asking to see that that document? Uh,
7: to the extent that's happening, it would be happening through the Intelligence and Armed Services Committee leadership in the first instance. Okay.
9: And uh, and I imagine that is obviously um some sort of secret stuff
7: that's about as far as i can go
5: mm-hmm.
11: It's not every day I find myself in agreement with John Cornine, the right-wing Republican from Texas, but today is one of those days because Cornine has introduced an amendment that would require the Obama White House to release its memo that provides the justification for its policy of rubbing out U.S. citizens, according to an excellent report by Adam Sirwer of Mother Jones. We're not mere supplicants to the executive branch. We are a co-equal branch of government, Cornyn said during a recent Senate discussion of his amendment. So, he added, it's insufficient to say, pretty please, Mr. President, pretty please, Mr. Attorney General, will you please tell us the legal authority by which you can claim the authority to kill American citizens abroad. In case you've forgotten, Obama has knocked off not only Anwar al-Awlaki, the al-Qaeda cleric, but also al-Awlaki's 16-year-old son and a young editor for al-Qaeda, and all three were American citizens. Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, also a Republican, has been demanding this hit list, too. We got a license to kill Americans, he said recently, and we don't know the legal basis for it. Democrats, by the way, have shelved Senator Cornyn's amendment, so we still won't know the legal basis for it. If Bush had been doing this, they'd be up in arms. Which tells you that all that matters is not whose ox is getting gored, but whose ox is doing the goring. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
5: and I don't know where I am, I don't know where I've been, but I know where I want to go, and so I thought I'd let you know, yeah, these things take forever, I especially am slow.
10: Ring, ding 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 ring the bell, I found something to agree with Republicans on. Now, uh, I believe they're doing it for politics, but I don't care. Uh, John Cornyn, Chuck Grassley, two Republican senators who've never uh, seemed to care about liber- uh, civil liberties before, uh, American rights, all these things. Come on. Uh, too much executive branch power. <laughs> Republican senators, you caring about that? That's a good one. But now that we're heading towards an election and they want to criticize President Obama, they're like, can you believe how much executive power this guy has? With his kill list. Now they're right. So let me give you John Cornyn's quote first. This is a very conservative Republican senator from Texas. We're not mere supplicants to the executive branch. We are a co equal branch of government. So it is insufficient to say, pretty please, Mr. President, pretty please, Mr. Attorney General, will you please tell us the legal authority by which you claim the authority to kill American citizens abroad? Now, as much as uh, I think John Cornyn is a joke, I think that that statement is 100% correct he's basically asking well actually Chuck Grassley was asking now John Cornyn is demanding that the president at least share the legal reasoning behind his ability to kill us citizens abroad without a trial now remember they can just do a drone strike on you they already have on 3 us citizens in yemen alone in the last year alone and some of them are signature strikes so they signature strike is when you don't know who you're bombing literally Personality strike is we know who we're bombing. Signature strike is I don't know, they look Arab down there and I think they're mainly males. Okay? Now, one of the guys that we killed was a 16-year 16-year-old, uh Abdul Rahman Al-Awlaki, and we have never stated why we killed him. We never stated whether we intended to kill him, whether it was an accident, if it was a personality strike, whether it was a signature strike. Just like sad day, he's dead. He was a 16-year-old US citizen. Kid from Denver. OK, Now, his dad, or they said, was on a terrible list. Yada, yada, was helping Al-Qaeda. Did they ever present evidence about that? Of course not. They killed him too. But look, at least you can make a case for his dad. It appears that there's some evidence in the public that he was against us. Is that good enough to kill a U.S citizen? I don't think it's nearly good enough, but to kill his son, a 16-year-old. And what President Obama says, not only will I not share who we're killing, why we're killing them, what evidence we have. I won't even share with you the legal memo that explains how we have the legal authority to make that decision. Not only that, I won't even acknowledge that that memo exists. And not only will I not share with the media or the public, I won't even share with Congress. Oh, come on. That's ridiculous. So now John Cornyn is pretending to care when he never cared under Bush, but okay, I'll take it. And he says, you should and you have to produce that memo at least to members of Congress. Of course we live in a democracy. Of course the president has to say why he's killing or what is his legal basis for killing US citizens without a trial. Of course he does. Now here's Chuck Grassley from Iowa. We got a license to kill Americans and we don't know the legal basis for the license to kill Americans because our letters haven't been answered. Again, as much as I might disagree with Grassley on other issues, he's a hundred percent right about that. So, Attorney General Eric Holder, what are you doing here? How 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 are you calling this due process? We every American citizen has a right to due process. How do you explain it? This is the comical way that he explained it. Due process and judicial process are not one and the same, particularly when it comes to national security. The Constitution guarantees due process. It does not guarantee judicial process. Oh, it makes my stomach turn every time. What what the hell does that mean? Due process is not judicial process. You should, that's exactly what it is. You can't just sit in the executive branch and say I'm not going to tell Congress why we're doing this. I'm not going to share it with the judiciary. I'm just going to decide to execute people on my own. That would be maybe a monarchy, uh, certainly a totalitarian. Terry and former government, where the executive decides, oh, yeah, me and Bob got together and we decided to execute you. What do you mean? Due process is not judicial process. Of course it is! That's the whole foundation of our Constitution. Separation of powers. This is grotesque. Now, Chris Anders, senior legislative counsel for the ACLU, agrees. He makes two really good points here. First, he says, the key committees of Congress don't even know what the legal standard is or how they're applying it. So, how can they do meaningful oversight? That's what Congress's job is. They're supposed to do oversight of the executive branch. If the executive branch says, here's take your oversight and you shove it, okay? We're not going to share with you even our memos explaining why we have the right to do this. Well, of course you can't do oversight. Of course that's unconstitutional. But then Chris makes an even better point. He said, Quote, there's a fundamental due process right to know what it is you can't do in order to avoid getting killed by the order of the president. Now that applies to us. We're US citizens. If we go abroad, we don't know where the line is. I mean, I imagine most of us aren't going to come close to the line, but I'm only imagining. I mean, what did uh, the 16 year old from Denver do to get close to the line? Does anybody know? No, nobody knows. Did we intend to kill him? We don't know. So could your 16 year old get killed if you're abroad? The answer is absolutely he could. Now you say, oh, but they wouldn't do it to my 16 year old. Maybe yes, maybe no. We don't know because they won't tell you who they're killing and why they're killing him and what their legal basis for killing them is. Here's what the president needs to do, and I don't give a damn if he's a Democrat or a Republican or whatever he calls himself, pretending to be a progressive. Get out of here. Okay, no progressive says, "Yeah, we should do signature signature strikes where we just indiscriminately kill people without even knowing who the hell they are." And yes, we can do that to US citizens without a hint of evidence or a trial that we share with anybody else. That's the least progressive thing I have ever heard in my life. You have to present that to Congress. And then you have to present that to the public. We have to know why you're executing us.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. So the, the past few episodes of this show, of the voicemails and my commentaries have sort of been this combination conversation of centrism and uh, the, the potential value in voting for third parties. And, you know, honestly, I really thought the conversation was over. I was just sitting here preparing to do a, a brand new commentary in a completely different direction, starting an, an entirely new conversation when a voicemail came in. And, when you know, when I saw it, it was actually quite long. And I almost dismissed it out of hand as unplayable for the show based purely on its length. But then when I heard it, you know, I realized that there's actually some value there and that this would be a really good way to end this conversation on this note. So I'm actually gonna turn over my commentary section for the show to this voicemail and, uh, and just let you know that although it is a little on the long side, that it is worth listening to and checking out. Uh, so from here on out, I will uh, hand it over to Cindy from California.
4: Hi, Jay. I'm calling from California. My name's Cindy, and I'm calling to add to the conversation about centrism and third-party voting. These are two similar debates with a common underlying cause, I guess, or, or theme. One is, addresses the question of whether centrism aids Republicans in dragging the country rightward, or if it, uh, presents a way out of the polarization problem that we've got in the country uh, The other question has to do with whether or not voting for a third party helps to build that kind of party or if it just gives um, a victim you know, f- fragments the left and gives a victory to the Republicans. My contribution to this conversation is to point out the connection between these questions to explain how that connection works and to suggest a way out. The first thing we have to recognize is that many of the things we progressives want to change are dictated by the structure of our system. In the American system, the federal government is a result of what the states do. It's not a cause. This has always been true from the time of the First Continental Congress all the way to this present day and that's why Alec focuses on the states if they change the voting rules which are dictated by the states they change election outcomes if they change election outcomes they control the policy at both the state and federal level so here are two structural things to keep in mind Uh, this is the wonky part (laughs) but bear with me because it's really important we have a single member district plurality election structure for our federal legislative branch. We have an electoral college for the executive branch that awards votes according to the plurality winner in each state. These branches together choose the third branch. Because of something called Duverger's Law, and that's spelled D-U-V-E-R-G-E-R, Duverger's Law, this structure always results in a strong two-party system that will never change unless changes are made to that structure. To get rid of the Electoral College altogether requires a change to the Constitution, but to at least change the way electoral votes are awarded simply requires a change at the state level. And to do, to do that, we need to get states to pass the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Uh, you can Google that for more information to find out how that would work. The single-member districts are not mandated in the Constitution, but were mandated by Congress itself. The current Congress will never change that because the current members got there as a result of it. But I can, there's a way around that and I can describe that later. But anyway, because of Duverger's law, voting for a third party at the federal level will not make a third party more viable. To make a third party viable, it has to be built at the state level. I mean, if you can do that at the state level, it might gain some influence over a state legislature, and then that legislature can begin to do things like pass the National Popular Vote Compact or pass resolutions calling on Congress to change the single-member district setup. Strategically, I think focusing on a third party is putting the cart before the horse why try to build an engine of change in an environment where the engine is unlikely to work? It would be like building a boat in the desert or a tractor in the ocean. You might get it built, but it won't be very effective in the place you've built it. If that's what you want, you have to change the environment. A political system is easier to change, believe it or not, than an ecological system. There's a mechanism for a change in the system that we've already got, and it has been used before with incredible success, and that's the Article 5 Convention. A lot of people call this the Constitutional Convention option, which they immediately reject in the belief that it will result in a free-for-all. Many also argue it's never been done before what a lot of people don't realize is that the mere threat of the convention is the reason we have direct election of senators the first wave of progressives uh, back then it was mostly republicans but around the turn of the 19th to 20th centuries began a campaign calling for direct election of senators before that the state's appointed senators and that process had become really corrupt The Senate, of course, refused to pass any amendment that would alter the status quo because those Senators had gotten wealth and power with that status quo, so had no incentive to change it, which is kind of the situation we have now. But anyway, back then, the states began calling for an Article Five convention for the purpose of proposing amendments. It took 18 years, but by 1911, 30 of the 31 states necessary had passed legislation calling for a convention. Right after that, the senators saw that their situation was put in threat, you know, that they, they might lose their offices with this convention, so they immediately passed the um, 17th Amendment, and then the states ratified it. But anyway, so here's the activist call to action part. If you want an environment that fosters third parties, if you want to rein in corporate personhood, if you want to regulate money in politics, then there have to be changes to the structure of the federal government. People have to buckle down to the hard work of getting legislatures to do what the Constitution itself says they can. It took our predecessor progressives about 20 years to get the 17th Amendment. It took the corporatist Republicans about 30 years from the Powell memo to the complete capture of the judicial branch. None of these projects moves quickly. But if we want to achieve these goals, we have to turn our attention to the state legislatures. We need to swamp all those online petition sites and clog all the legislative phone lines demanding they take action on the Article V convention. Eventually, those politicians in Congress will do what they did in 1912. They'll pass whatever it takes to avoid the convention. Now, centrism, like voting for third parties, will never bring about change. Similar to the structural reality of Duverger's law, there's a negotiating principle that comes into play here. It's a bit trite to say it now, but negotiators generally fall into two categories, cooperative or competitive. The cooperative negotiator is always looking for common ground with the idea that if I give a little, you know, on this point, the other side will give a little on that point. Or if we work on the common ground stuff first, then goodwill will be built up and we'll be able to compromise on the harder stuff. The competitive negotiator seeks to maximize his win. So when a competitive negotiator encounters a cooperative negotiator, he takes every concession and then remains firm on his original demands for, you know, with regard to that harder stuff. I don't have to tell you that in today's Republican Party, both the base and the leadership have adopted the competitive stance and the Democrats, often in the name of centrism, have adopted the cooperative stance. Decades-old studies have shown that when a cooperative negotiator meets a competitive negotiator, the best tactic for that cooperative negotiator is to adopt a competitive strategy. Failure to do this on the part of the Democrats has resulted in a Supreme Court that is now the most conservative it has been in 100 years. Democrats acquiesce in extremely conservative Republican nominees, thinking the Republicans will extend the same courtesy, but that misunderstands the strategies the Republicans have adopted. When it's the Democrats' turn to nominate, the Republicans demand the Democrats agree to nominate judges that will be acceptable to the right in fact all the economic and tax policy choices both legislatively and judicially demonstrate this rightward drift as republican competitive negotiating strategy wins concession after concession from the cooperative democrats many of them call themselves centrists. anyway my shorthand advice after this very long message is um, my shorthand advice about voting is vote defensively at the federal level. You're not going to win change there. Vote for change at the state level. But more importantly, don't let those state legislators rest until they do what's necessary to fix the system, which is to call for an Article Five convention. That's the only thing. That will make the corporatist senators and congresspeople sit up and take notice. Anyway, like everyone else who calls in, I really love the show. I think it's one of the best produced shows out there. So thank you for that. Bye.
0: Thanks to Cindy for that message, and congratulations on being the only person to have left a 10-minute long voicemail and had it played on the show. That is an impressive feat. Uh, But to Cindy's point about the Constitutional Convention being the only way to create systemic change in this country, the only people I know of who are working on that, I'm sure there are others, but the only people I know of are Friends of the Show, The Young Turks, and their political action committee, Wolfpack. So for details on what they're up to, please visit wolf-pac.com. So that's going to do it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening and special thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations to the show. That is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining with us on Facebook and Twitter and for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show, from bestoftheleft.com.
5: a fine man in a living room, who shadow bases the form. who'll take you out in the open door. This is not my life, it's just a